along with the text. Father, I pray that you would show us the things that we need to see, hear what we need to hear, and move us, guys, God, in the way that you want to move us. God, I lean on your Holy Spirit for guidance, and we lean on your Holy Spirit to move us. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to open your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. When traveling on a plane, I'm often struck by the reality when I drop off my bags at a baggage claim, I fly, I arrive at another airport, and the bags are there waiting for me. And I think about that, and you, know, you, you check them in, they get put in a conveyor belt, and you don't know what else happens to them. And for the people I know who work behind the scenes, they they say, well, your bags get pretty abused. They get thrown around, tossed in different places in order to get them to the plane so that it can fly with you and arrive when you get there to your destination. And when you get there to your destination, the bags come and hopefully they're all in one piece. And then you're happy, you're thrilled, and you go on with your, with, with, uh, your journey. As I think about this illustration of a plane and a traveler and a luggage, I think in many ways it does illustrate our lives. See, we are like travelers going about in our days, pilgrims in life. And in this illustration, the luggage illustrates our faith. And we have our faith with us, we bring it with us, we check it in, in our travels, and then it goes off and there's something that takes place as we go about our travel to this faith to this luggage. There are times in our journey when our faith gets thrown around. It gets beaten down. It gets tossed. There are other times when it's just peaceful and it's on a conveyor belt, if you will, going about. And our desire is that we would arrive at a final destination with faith that is strong and intact. But one of the realities is that oftentimes our faith is quite fragile. And just as you put glass in a luggage... It's likely going to break in the travel. And many of us have faith that is much like that. When it's tested in any way, it crumbles and we begin to doubt God. We begin to fear. We begin to worry. And some of us, as with baggage, it doesn't arrive with us at our final destination. We lose it in the process. As we think about these stories of the Old Testament, I'm really thrilled about this series because it is a series that gets to the heart of the matter, challenges us about our faith. Do we have strong and sturdy faith that can withstand a trial? Or are we the kind of people that at the sign of a dark cloud, we begin to turn our back on God? Another thing that these stories bring about is not just a matter of our faith, but a matter of who our God is. And these stories have great theology, truths about God and His person, His character, and His nature. And as we looked last week, oftentimes when we neglect these stories, we neglect some meat that we get to chew on that can nourish our spiritual lives. Now, as we saw last week, we saw a great story of faith. But this week, there's something unique. It's not a story of great faith, but actually... Of wimpy faith. You know the movie Diary of a Wimpy Kid had come out recently? Well, this is the Diary of a Wimpy Faith in Judges 6 through 8. 
Now, I remember the first time I taught the story of Gideon. I don't remember the first time I learned it, but the first time I taught it was at Inner City Impact, and I was discipling these fourth through sixth grade boys. And I remember at that time how amazing it was how we could relate to the story of Gideon, how we could find our own faith in his faith and say, yeah, I can relate to him in ways maybe I don't wish I could relate. And my prayer is that as we open Judges chapters 6 through 8, we would see that the God of Gideon is the God that we serve today. And that we can leave today declaring as we left last week that that is our God. He was, He was, He is, and He, that's right. So that's my desire, that we would see that our God is actively at work in our lives as He was in Gideon's life. Would you turn your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 6, please? And as you turn there, I want to give you a bit of a background to the story of Judges. It takes place after Joshua, the one who replaced Moses, Joshua had now passed away. He had led Israel into the promised land. They began to conquer the the wicked nations, began to establish their land. But after Joshua died, the people went astray. And they began to worship the false gods of the land. And there's a cycle that takes place in the book of Judges, where the people of God turn away from God and worship idols. God raises up someone called a judge to come and bring them back. And the people repent or turn away from their idolatry. The judge dies, and then the people go back to their sin. And there's this awful cycle of idolatry and this half-hearted kind of repentance. And that's where we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6. And in verse 1, we have a theme that runs throughout the book. And it says this. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of of Midian for seven years. The people constantly did what was evil in the sight of God. In fact, elsewhere it says that the people of God did what was right in their own eyes. And here the result of it was... God rose up a nation, a wicked nation, to oppress them in order that God's people would turn back to Him. And in this scenario, it was the people of Midian. What the people of Midian used to do, when the crops were ready to be harvested, they would come by with hordes of people. And they'd link up with other nations like the Amalekites and people of the East. And they would come, and right when the, the food was ready to be harvested, they would come and steal all the food from the land And leave God's people hungry. And this happened for so many years, for seven years. And began, God's people began to cry out, asking God to intervene for them. They were oppressed, they were broken, and they were were humbled. And this is where we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6. God's people have been humbled. And in verse 7, God raises up a prophet to make clear why they were in this situation. And the prophet tells them in verse 8, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. This is what God did for them. Verse 9, And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear or worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then this conjunction, but you have not obeyed my voice. 
See, the people of God had gone into idolatry and God was judging them. And this is the plight that they were in at this moment. But God had not given up on his people. And just as he had raised up judges before, he was about to do that again with an unlikely kind of character. Verse 11 tells us that the angel of the Lord showed up and sat under a terebinth tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abia's right, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So get the scene. There's this man named Gideon. He's out at a wine press getting the wheat, the food ready. Now, you don't get wheat ready at a wine press. That's where you do the grapes. But he was, he was there to hide from the Midianites because he knew the harvest was here. These guys were going to come soon and take over our land. And God's angel shows up and has a message for Gideon while he's there hiding food. He says this in verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Sort of an irony here because this man of great valor or courage is currently hiding. Verse 13, Gideon said to him, to the angel, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. And given us into the hand of Midian. You see, the angel addresses Gideon specifically. He says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened? Almost completely ignoring the statement of the angel. And he asks two questions. He says, if God was really with us, why has this happened to us? Which is implying, if God really loved us, this wouldn't be the situation. He says, not only is, why is this happening, but then he asks, where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers told us about? So he not only asks, why is this this way, but he also asks, where is God? If God is all-powerful, why are we being oppressed? Here, Gideon questions God's love and God's power. And then he draws this conclusion He says, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. What Gideon does here is a perfect blame-shifting situation. We had already seen that Israel was in this situation because they had begun to worship idols. They turned away from God. But now Gideon's blaming God for their plight. Why would we be in this situation if God loved us? Where, where is God in his mighty hand in my life? See, the stories Gideon heard about God in the past was not adding up with the experiences of God he was having in the present. Gideon could not reconcile these tensions, and he concluded that God had forsaken him. Part of Gideon's problem was that he didn't know God. He didn't understand how God really worked. He questioned God's love and God's power. Two things that we know are sure and stable. God's love has no end. His power is never without strength. And Gideon clearly does not know his God. But God doesn't throw in a towel with Gideon. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Now go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? So here you think, you know, 
God, he just really said some awful things about you, but God hasn't given up. And then God affirms him with a persuasive statement. He says, is it not I who is sending you to rescue God's people, my people, from the oppressive hand of the Midianites? I'm going to do this through you, Gideon. It is me who sends you. When he says, it is, is it not I who send you? Shouldn't Gideon be thinking, this, this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. This is the God who parted the Red Sea, who gave them manna and, wha- and quail in the wilderness. This is the God who tore down the walls of Jericho. And this same God tells Gideon, I'm sending you to give victory to my people. This should have been the icing on the cake for Gideon. But as we see here, right from the start of this story, Gideon wasn't, was not a man of mighty faith. He was not a man of great belief, but a man of doubt, fear, and weak faith. Because even with God making his bold statement, verse 15, Gideon says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. See, Gideon's fear and doubt led him to question God's character, but also question God's power in his own life. As if God would say, you know what, Gideon, you're right. You're not that much of a man, a strong man. I I can't use you, actually. That's almost the way Gideon approaches God. But even still, God puts up with his lack of faith. And God tells him in verse 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. If that is not a statement of confidence from the God of the universe, I do not know what is. God gives him a promise that I will use you, Gideon. Though your faith is weak, I will build you up. And Gideon says in verse 17, If now I found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will stay until you return. Gideon ends giving God a test. He said, God, show me a sign. If you're really going to do what you said you're going to do, if you're really going to use me, let me leave. I'm going to prepare a meal, a sacrifice to you. And when I return, you're going to still be here. Will you make a deal with me? And here again, God puts up with his weak faith. And God says, I'll wait for you. So Gideon goes home and he does this, he prepares this, this offering, this meat and this food, and he brings it to the angel of the Lord. And he lets, sets it before him and the angel says, all right, pour the soup over the meat. And he does it and he puts his staff to it. The angel of the Lord does this and all of it just disappears with fire. And Gideon says, now I know that I saw the angel of the Lord. So we think this is a man of faith now. Well, later that night, The angel of the Lord shows up again to Gideon and tells him, All right, Gideon, before you go out and give my people victory, you've got to do this one thing for me. You've got to go to your father's house. He has an idol there to Baal, and you need to tear it down. And there's also an Asherah pole, a wooden pole next to it that people sacrifice to. You need to tear that down too. Build me an altar and burn the wood of the Asherah pole on my altar and make a sacrifice to me. Now this is Gideon we're talking about. 
this man of weak faith. But somehow he musters the courage to do what God asked him to do, except he does it at nighttime. Look at verse 27. God says, So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of his town to do it by day, he did it by night. And God in his mercy protects Gideon because this would have been a death sentence to him. And as we see in these opening kind of stories, how God is trying to build up the faith of this man, Gideon, in order to use him to accomplish God's purposes. Well, after these tests, the big test comes in verse 33. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. The Midianites were on their way and they were ready to come and take out the food just as they had done for seven years before. Would Gideon be ready to stand up to them? How would he do it? Well, verse 34 tells us the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. Gideon was able to bring together an army of 32,000 soldiers and he's probably thinking, all right, this is good now. We've got an army of 32,000. We're ready to do battle. He knew that his army was small, though, in comparison, but he also had heard what God had told him. But in a moment of weakness, even with the Spirit of God clothing him with courage, mustering an army of 32,000, Gideon again doubts God. And this time it's worse than he had done before. In verse 36, Gideon questions God's word. He doubts God. He says this, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. What reason does Gideon have to even doubt God? Gideon says, all right, God, if you're going to do what you said you were going to do, let me just test you once more. I'm going to take my fleece, my sweater, and I'm going to put it outside overnight. And as the dew of the morning comes, I want my fleece to get all the water in it, but I want none of the dew to come on the grass. Then if you do that, God, I know that you will use me to save Israel. God has every right to strike him at this moment. But God does the unthinkable again in verse 38. In four words in the ESV it says, And it was so. God did it. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill the bowl with water. So then we must think, All right, Gideon, what else do you need? God's done this over and over with you. He waited for you to bring your sacrifice. He protected you when you tore down the altar of Baal. He made your fleece wet. But Gideon's not done in verse 39. Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me just once more with the fleece test you. 
Please let it be dry on the, on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. So God, let's do the opposite tonight. I'm going to put my fleece out, but this time let my fleece be dry and the ground be wet. Then I'll know for sure, for sure, for sure that you're with me, God. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only and on all the ground there was dew. If you're like me, I'm asking the question, God, seriously? Are you really putting up with this man's doubt? See, but God was doing a work in Gideon. He knew that Gideon's fear and doubt was like a ball and chain around his ankle, preventing him from walking by faith. And God was not concerned so much about Gideon's fear at the moment, but what God would make him to be in order to bring victory to his people. Because indeed, God had not forsaken his people, and his hand was not short or weak. And God did what Gideon had requested to build up this poor man's weak faith. Well, in chapter 7, verse 1, Gideon and his 32,000 soldiers are ready to do battle. He got it confirmed him through various tests and signs that God was going to bring him deliverance. But just as God often does, God says, you know, you've been testing me a lot. Now it's time for me to do a little test for you, Gideon. And in verse 2, God does and says the unthinkable to Gideon. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Gideon, you've got 32,000 soldiers, and you already are extremely outnumbered. But you know what? That's too many people. You need to have a smaller army for me to give you victory. Because when I do this, I will receive the glory and not you and your army. And God begins to strip down Gideon's army. He tells them, tell all the people who are afraid to go home. What, what kind of question is that to a bunch of soldiers as they're about to go out to war and they're outnumbered? Who's afraid? Yeah, me. I'm afraid. And guess what? 22,000 of them go home, which leaves... Gideon's army, 67% less than it was with where he started. He had 10,000 soldiers. Surely this was a small army ready to do battle against the multitude. But the Lord said to Gideon in verse 4, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And what God tells Gideon, tell them to all drink water. And Gideon does so. 9,700 of the men bow, put, get down to the ground and begin to drink water like a dog, while 300 of them bring the water up and drink it like this. And guess what God does? Gideon, tell those guys who drank water like a dog to go home. And there Gideon is with his mighty 300 soldiers. God says, perfect, that's enough for me to, to, do, to do victory. These aren't Spartans. These aren't 300 Spartans. These are 300 men who are ready to do battle, extremely outnumbered. And God is ready to do something great. God tells Gideon to go down into the camp of the Midianites secretly. And that he was going to hear something there. But he was too afraid to bring his servant along with him. And from what we know of Gideon, guess what he did? He brought his servant along with him. And we see there... 
in verses 13 and following that when Gideon got to the camp, he heard some Midianite army uh, soldiers having a discussion. And these soldiers were saying, hey, I had a dream last night. And I dreamed that this, this piece of barley tumbled into our camp and it killed all of us. And the other guy says, you know, you know what that is, right? That must be referring to Gideon. He's going he's gonna to have victory over us. God in his mercy gives Gideon this opportunity to hear these people afraid of this man named Gideon. And then this great statement. God had finally done and fully done the work he needed to do in Gideon. And this was our key verse at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. This man of weak faith finally got it. Through so many tests and signs, God had built him up to the place where he would use him to accomplish his purpose. And Gideon says, uh, in verse 16, Gideon does this. He divided the 300 men into three companies of 100. And he put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. This is the scene. The Midianite army is in a valley. And there's a mountainous region around them. And Gideon with his 300 uh, soldiers, they, they spread out around these Midianites. And the scripture tells us there's a multitude of Midianites that couldn't even be counted. And they were mounted on camels and they were armed with swords. And Gideon with his 300 soldiers are armed with a trumpet and a torch. And he has a jar over his torch. And this place Gideon knew that if God was going to give victory, it had nothing to do with him. Well, the time was ready. It was the middle of the night. Gideon and his army encircled the Midianite armies. He sounded his trumpet. They smashed the jars. And just picture it in a pitch black night, just torches lighting up the sky around them. And then they heard the shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. And no doubt at the sound of Gideon's name, they remembered the dream. And what God tells us, and it's a remarkable statement here in verse, end of verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 21. This is speaking of Gideon's army. Every man stood still in the place around the camp. And all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against the comrade against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beit Shittah towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abimehola. What happens here is they hear this battle cry, they panic, they get up, they think they're under attack, they take their swords and they, swords and they start killing each other. And without lifting up a weapon, God gives the Midianites into the hands of Gideon. Who received the glory for that victory. See, that's our God at work in Gideon's life. This man of weak faith to bolster him up to a place where he can do battle and bring God's people victory. 
And this is how God was at work. When we look at Gideon's story, there are so many parallels to our own life. If you recall when Gideon started, he had heard stories about God, but never experienced him in his own life. And there was a, there was a disconnect for him. And I find that so true of many of us today. We've heard stories of God's working in our lives and perhaps in our parents' lives. And there are many of us here, young adults especially, who've heard of God's working in the lives of your parents, but you've never seen Him work in your own life. And you're still trying to run off of the faith of your parents, but your faith is a weak faith. And you find yourself in a similar situation with Gideon when he was first called. Where is God at work? And the message we have here is Gideon was wrong because he didn't know God. And that's our starting place. The God of yesterday is the God of today when we come to know Him personally. And we cannot run off the faith of others to get us through in our lives. And sometimes many of us have hurt in our lives and that's what prevents us from accepting the God of our parents or the God we've been told about. And I heard great stories this past week at our baptism classes. Three stories in particular of different people who had different hurts in their lives. And they shared how God used those hurts of their past to bring them to God in the present. And they're going to get baptized on Saturday. And you should come. And our baptism service at 10 o'clock, come and hear how God worked. And see that that's our God at work. He's not just a God of some stories in the past, but He's a God of the present at work in your life. What we also see in Gideon's life is that how this fear and doubt led him and crippled him. It hindered him. It was like a ball and chain around his ankle. And he could not walk by faith. And many of us think, well, God, if I throw out a fleece and you wet the fleece overnight and everything else is dry, I'd believe too. So you think, well, you know what, God, I'm going to test you just like Gideon did. But this, this isn't what the story is about. Gideon is not admired for that. Last week we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown in a fiery furnace. And they stared death in the eye. And they said, God, I don't even know the result of this story, but I'm going to believe you regardless, and I'm not going to worship this golden image. Gideon, on the other hand, knew the outcome of the story. God kept telling him, Gideon, I'm going to give you victory. And even knowing the outcome, he still lacked faith. And many of us are confronted here. Whose faith is yours like? Some of us may have the DNA of a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I guarantee you, if your faith is strong like that, it didn't come overnight. It came through much trial, much sifting. Bring your confidence from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300, and you had nothing left but God. And God alone has become enough for you. And that's why you have the spiritual DNA and faith of those three. But then there are others of us here today who are like Gideon. And just like with Gideon, though, God will meet you where you're at. With your wimpy faith, with your weak faith. But God doesn't want you to remain in that place. And He will use trials to sift you. And don't resent trials. Say, God, how are you using this to give me 
more faith to help me be a man or a woman that could be used by you just like you used Gideon. That's our God who's faithfully working in us. When our faith and our trust and our hopes are misplaced, God will strip those from us. And we have to say, God, you are enough for me. You may strip out all my securities. Whether I've got 5,000 in the bank or five, God, you are enough. Whether I'm a homeowner or renter or don't know what tomorrow holds, God, you are enough for me. Whether you're unemployed or have a great job, is God enough for you? How many was enough for Gideon? Was it 32,000? 10,000? The number was, it wasn't a matter of a number. What was enough was God was enough for Gideon. And is God enough for you? Many of us have fragile faith. And we put it on its conveyor belt. And it gets tossed around. Will our faith hold up under trials, under testing? And what it comes down to is what we know of God. The very thing that Gideon failed to understand. That God is who he said he says he is. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. And also that God is able to do what he says he'll do. He's not lacking power. And if he does or does not come through in your life, it's not because he wasn't able, it's because he chose not to. And he's teaching you through that circumstance. And at the end of the day, what he's trying to do in our lives is help us say, God, you are enough. Let me be that man or that woman of faith. That though it gets tested, though it's under pressure, it's going to arrive with me at that final place, oh God. And you alone are my object of worship. And that's what God's calling you and calling me to be. So will you declare that God is enough? Or will you say, God, where were you? Why does this happen? Blame him like Gideon did? Dear people of Good News Bible Church, that's our God. He was there, he is here, he will always be. And he is for you. And he wants you to walk by faith, not by sight, declaring that he is enough. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we we come before you, Lord. And we are sobered by Gideon's story because we see ourselves in his shoes. And Lord, so often we want to pat ourselves in life with so many securities. We want that army around us protecting us. We want to enter battle with a sword. And yet, God, so often you strip us of our securities and you give us a trumpet and a torch and say, I'm enough for you. And oh God, I know something I neglected to say in this message. The Gideon story doesn't end well. And I pray that our people, God, today would go home and read the rest. Because Gideon turns from you, even when his faith was strong. And God, may we not be those kind of people. May we be people of faith who say you are enough. You are enough always. Oh God, how we love you and we thank you that you put up with our weak faith. And you strengthen us to accomplish your purposes. That you would receive the glory. And may it be to you and not to us. In Jesus' name, amen.